Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we have been having in-depth conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. Season 5 had some great adaptations, like our Meryl Streep Oscar-nominated performances series. We covered adaptations like Kramer vs. Kramer, Sophie's Choice, and The French Lieutenant's Woman. It's a real Sophie's Choice between those books. <laughs> you see what, I, <laughs> see what I did there? Uh, yeah. Uh, and I don't think it's quite at the level of a real Sophie's Choice. We also did Snowpiercer for our Bong Joon-ho series, adapted from the French graphic novel Le Transpersonnage. Man, I love that movie. We had our two-part 1939 series that included adaptations like Gone with the Wind, Ninochka, The Women, and The Hound of the Baskervilles. A number of those 1939 movies, like Goodbye, Mr. Chips, also tied into our recent 1940 Academy Award Best Picture nominee series. Our naughty children horror series had creepy adaptations like The Bad Seed, Village of the Damned, The Innocents, and Children of the Corn. For our Hayao Miyazaki series, we talked about his take on Lupin III with the Castle of Cagliostro, plus his own The Wind Rises. Some great listener choice picks, too. Viridiana and The Great Escape. And for our David Mamet Wright's series, The Verdict, The Untouchables, and Glengarry Glen Ross. Plus, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang from our Shane Black series adapted from Brett Halliday's novel, Bodies Are Where You Find Them. Dive into the sources for all of these at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support the show. Check out thenextreel.com slash originals today and find your next read. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. What was it today? What was it today? Give me the temp. Uh, it was, I, don't, I don't know. It was probably about 110 today. Whoa. Whoa. Wow. That's that's significant. It's cooling down a little bit because of the monsoon weather. <laughs> You're having a monsoon, too? Yeah, it's uh, it's monsoon season right now, so it's very, you know, it gets cloudier and rainier and wow. And uh more humid. Wow. No, I don't know why people live there. <laughs> where you live. <laughs> That's what air conditioning is for, Pete. <laughs> uh we've got uh you know, should we talk about this uh the weta effect? Weta effect? The wet effect. The weta effect should we talk about it what do you think of that does that make you you sent me this video yeah uh, talk about it why is it why why should we talk about this it's an interesting little video about the decline of film quality and it's the this person put together this uh video the weta effect or why special effects peaked in the 90s and really is talking about how in the age of digital special effects how we really kind of our eyes don't really buy into the image. And so because of that, we just don't have as much a sense that it's really as as good of a film. I mean, we can subconsciously tell that things just aren't quite real there, as good as they may be. And he argues that Weta and the developments that they've had in effects, it seems to, in, in this little video, seem to kind of all um, culminate really at... Uh, King Kong, the Peter Jackson version, because everything was CG. There was just so much stuff that was CG, all fighting in this jungle, King Kong and these dinosaurs. And our eye subconsciously could tell that it just wasn't completely a real environment. And he did an interesting comparison between Ang Lee's Hulk from, when was that? 2000? It was like 2003. Yeah, something like that. And then 2008? Yeah, The Incredible Hulk with Edward Norton. And it uh, does an interesting comparison between two frames. And as much as people didn't like Hulk, the Ang Lee version, the image that he pulled of Hulk in San Francisco looks like a, a figure in an actual city. Whereas in, in the incredible Hulk, it looks like a CG creature in hell. a CG environment that, yeah, <laughs> of hell really. And it just doesn't ground us. And because of that, his theory is this is why modern blockbusters are just sucking so much more, except for the few that manage to somehow find the right blend. And he shows a, a quick shot of Fury Road in there and a couple other things I didn't quite catch. But it's an interesting theory. Story Brain is the person who put it out there. So uh, I I don't know if he's completely accurate. He sounds like he's still theorizing on it himself. But I like that 
it's a very interesting theory, and it's something that could be worth investigating further. I think so, and I think it's worth keeping in mind, especially, you know, maybe not now for our 1939 series, uh, <laughs> but certainly moving forward. And when you when you start to compare it, certainly the films we've done, uh, the film board films, the, the big Marvel films, you know, uh, Ant-Man premiered, uh, I think, yesterday. Uh, and so that's going to be hitting uh, mainstream here very soon. Like these are the particularly these kinds of of um, experiences. I think it's worth looking at in this light. Like how just how believable is it? Um, you know the visual trickery. Certainly in in the story brain video, the clips that he chose satisfy the requirements. Like right. I, I walked right. away feeling really convinced that that those uh, examples were accurate. Yeah. And, I mean, I think he was smart to show some examples of films like Mad Max Fury Road, which do really kind of go the other way and showing how so much was created in a real environment and just some small digital touches yeah. were done to it to enhance it as opposed to just create the entire thing. Obviously, some scenes like the, the flaming monsoon right. that they drive through was all completely digitally created. But I think he does. I, I think he, he picks some good things. But you're right. It's worth keeping in our heads as we kind of continue to analyze certain things and really get a sense of where the level of believability right. is falling. And, you know, even more in addressing the, the sort of our ability to conquer the uncanny valley, right? This, this sense where it gets so real, it's unreal. Right. Uh, and uh, I, I think we, he's right. And he makes this sort of, he alludes to the fact that we may be figuring this out, that like it may, this may be a problem of the now. And, and we're just sort of moving through it as, as CG experiences get so much better. Um, and so that, that's another kind of marker that I'm interested in. Like when, when's the first time we're going to see a film where we walk away saying, I, I totally buy it. I buy everything about it, you know? Well, yeah. Or where you walk away and you don't even know that you right. watched a digital person. And I know we've, we've mentioned this, this is James Cameron's thing. It was, you know, when he did Titanic, he came out and he said the entire principle of, of using visual effects and the way that I'm doing visual effects is to be able to tell a story that previously would have been impossible to tell, not to put aliens on screen, but just to tell an authentic story that would have formerly been impossible to tell. And, and I think Titanic was a great example of that principle, um, and and was mostly believable. I mean, it was uh, it was one of those films I was able to kind of lose myself in. So, I think when a filmmaker, there are filmmakers who use their effects very carefully and in a way where you just don't see it. I mean, Ron Howard, I think, did yeah. a brilliant job in Apollo thirteen. Uh, there's another one, great example. Yeah, um, Robert Zemeckis, I think, has the skill to do that, and I think sometimes he does, but sometimes he. He is also just a big fan of camera trickery and yeah. the the way that cameras can move and stuff. And so I think sometimes he ends up doing things with the camera that make it less believable, even though it's it, everything else about it seems believable. Very interested in seeing The Walk. Um, yes. That, that's going to be one, I think, that's going to be a showcase for either doing it right or, you know, having a little bit too much uh, frivolity injected into the camera. From the trailer, it looks like he's managing himself. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I love this video. We're going to post it in the show notes if you want to check it out. Uh, the the Weta effect effects in movies, uh, and uh, you can check that out and see see what you think. Let us know. Yes, uh, indeed. Our our friend, the um, uh, Blot Spot, came back. Ben Lot to talk about Gone with the Wind.
Did he? You didn't see it. You haven't seen this I, I, news to you. I checked several times today, and <laughs> there was nothing there. Ha-ha! <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's just two hours. Here we go. All this right. is so good. Where I didn't agree with you, he says. And I, I imagine he's not alone. I, I, in hindsight, well, well, I'll read it, and then we'll talk. Where I didn't agree with you. I think I'm able to compartmentalize a little easier when watching Gone with the Wind because I could mentally set aside the racist themes and look at the story and characters on their own merits. While I despised what they were fighting for, I kind of sympathized with the people who got caught up in fighting with a false sense of security. Where I agreed with you, I found Scarlet to be an extraordinarily unlikable character, and I didn't care when, when all the tragedies struck her life. The movie looked and sounded amazing, but was just not worth the time investment. Interesting. Your rank, uh, our rank, I should say, 172 out of 190. His rank, 160 out of 190. Pretty close. Yeah, I liked it slightly better. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I agree. And I think that's what happens with films like this or Peter Pan, like which I brought up, is people are able to kind of compartmentalize those sorts of elements of the story that um, make it a problem and are able to just enjoy the story. And I think that I am kind of able to do that uh, when I watch it too. Uh, however... In certainly talking, more than me. I mean, I think yeah, I certainly more than you. Right, right. Uh, it it uh, yeah. It just became as we talked about it. <laughs> it became harder to like it. <laughs> we just talked about it too much. <laughs> we did. That was the problem right there. Uh, so I I think it's in hindsight. You know, I that's what I was going to say in the beginning. In, in hindsight, I think it it really is about compartmentalization. And am I am, was I too hard on the film in that in that regard? And um, I I I, <laughs> I just wanted. I, I think the problem is I wanted so much more out of the film than I got, or, or in my head I expected to get so much more out of the film than I got. Sure. Uh, but I'll tell you what didn't age well on me a week after our conversation. Uh, boy, I like Scarlet even less. <laughs> so annoying. <laughs> oh, that's funny. And that's I wanted funny. to tell you, I'm changing my guilty pleasure to Peter Pan. I thought you'd be excited about that. <laughs> oh, you. Mm. Why, <laughs> Shall we tell the people where we're from? Yes, where are we? <laughs> This is the next reel. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hello, hello. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, the second in our series in the great films of 1939 with Ernst Lubitsch. Lubitsch's. Lubitsch's. He loves it when you call him that. Luby's Soviet charmer, Ninochka. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe on iTunes or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you're the sort that tends to stick to raw beets and carrots at mealtime, then you're also the kind of person who should probably head over to Instagram.com slash The Next Reel and play The Next Reel's Instagram hashtag PonyPrize hashtag GuessTheMovieChallenge. Andrew, how did we do against the Bolsheviks this week? This I can't pronounce good... anything. This is going to be a I, tough one. Bolsheviks you, I think I think you prepped for the show by doing everything in Russian all week, and now trying to get back into English. You're just that is that is a central problem. problem. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know the Bolsheviks really. Uh, uh, Steve Smart had uh, a good run with the Bolsheviks this week. He did. He had an awesome run, and you know what? We have a very special special segment this week. We're trying something new. You know what? Stephen Smart is going to tell us 
how he did in his own segment. Here it is. Stephen Smart's Instagram Pony Prize results. Hi, guys. Uh, Stephen here from the Instagram Guess the Movie Pony Prize uh, Challenge. Uh, we had fun this week with the ponies uh, stumped and lots of great guesses from the usual suspects. This week's movie was Fritz Lang's House by the River from 1950. Not one of Lang's better known works. It's a B-movie made on a shoestring budget, but with Lang's direction, it makes a fun 90 minutes full of shadow, suspense and some gothic horror. This week's winner is Pass Malti, who got it on MH6 and is entered to win the 2015 Guess the Movie Pony Prize. So congrats, Pass Malti, once again. And yes, you're right, I do love Lang's work. And as always, a challenge starts Friday. So thanks, guys, and uh, see you later. Well, that is awesome. Love every now and again. I love I love dropping a stumper in there. He's yeah. He he likes throwing these little Fritz Lang ones in. So I, I think if people aren't sure what it is, they should probably Fritz Lang. Fritz Lang's uh, <laughs> filmography and pull something out because this is the third or fourth uh, Fritz Lang film that he's kind of randomly scattered in here. This is a, a gothic mystery from 1950 that Fritz Lang directed. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah, just perfect. All right, I'm in. Yeah, Let's. Me too. Uh, why don't we do trailers? What do you say? Let's do it. <laughs> I'm going to go first because I feel like I've been holding on to this trailer for too long. <laughs> Just let it go, man. Just I, I was going to do this last week, but you, uh, I, I think for rightfully so, harangued me into doing the uh, the, the new Jackie Chan uh, film. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Everybody needs week. to check that one out. Everybody needs to be a part of that, for sure. Uh, but this... Uh, this week I am doing sleeping with other people because every now and again you just need a good uh, rom- sex romp film. That's really what I think. <laughs> this is uh, a good-natured womanizer and a serial cheater form a platonic relationship that helps reform them in ways while mutual attraction sets in. Uh, directed by Leslie Headland, stars Natasha Lynn, uh, Allison Brie, uh, my goodness, Adam Scott, Jason Sudeikis, Amanda Peet, uh, Daniela Pineda, Mark Blucas. Uh, Mark Blucas, man, I haven't heard from him in a long time. Uh, Jason Matzukas, who is really funny on The League. Uh, if you are not a fan of The League, you've got to get acquainted with Jason Matzukas there. Uh, anyway, it's a great cast of, again, really funny people. And the tagline, or, or it may be one of the pull quotes from one of the critics, uh, said, you know, you'll you'll go for the sex jokes, but stay for the heart. And I really get that sense when I'm watching this uh, watching this trailer. It is uh, uh, These people are really sweet and charming and, and good-natured, good-looking people. And I can't wait to see them all uh, on screen together. So um, what do you think? I think, yeah, I think I agree with you. <laughs> It's one of those films that it's like this could even either be really bad and it could just completely stink because sometimes Jason Sudeikis is in movies like that that I yeah, just yeah. don't care about at all, or it could be something that ends up being uh, really raunchy but has a lot of heart. And I I want it to be that, and it looks like it could be that. That I think the characters look really interesting, the relationships look really interesting. I buy these people together. Mm-hmm. I think that can be critical in this sort of film. So. Yeah, I, I think it could work. Um, Leslie Headland did the uh, About Last Night remake, which I didn't I w- see, but I... I was just going to bring that up. 
Yeah, I heard good things about it, though. I, I have heard nothing about it, and, and I kind of intentionally avoided it because I'm, I'm one of those where the original about last night sort of on my guilty pleasure list. Right. Uh, and I love the play so much, um, Sexual Perversity in Chicago. I'm, I'm a big fan of the play. Um, she also uh, wrote and directed uh, uh, Bachelorette in 2012 with Kirsten Dunst and Isla Fisher and Lizzie Kaplan. And uh, I didn't see that either, but I also heard actually some reasonably good things about that one. It's kind of a middle of the road, but if you're in the right crowd, in the right mood, it can be kind of a kind of a funny uh, film. And it's based on her play. Right. She'd written that yeah. as play, right. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, it looks interesting, and I, uh, yeah, it could be one that's worth seeing. I'll, I'll, I think I'll, this is one I will kind of get a read on when it's uh, yeah. closer to coming out and see what people are saying about it. You know what it felt like to me, the About Last Night, to see this back-to-back with About Last Night, that this very much feels like the script she probably wanted to write with About Last Night. Right? She didn't direct About Last Night, right? she just wrote it, and so this is, this is one that, that may be sort of cleaning out her proverbial closet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, so that's mine. Uh, when does it come out? September 11th, 2015, in the U.S. Excellent. All right, what's yours? Well, mine is a new film by uh, Sherry Springer Berman and Robert Pulcini, the directors who uh, were nominated for American Splendor, which was a really interesting film that, uh, you know, I, I didn't love it, but I was completely fascinated by the way that they did it by Paul Giamatti, man. Oh yeah. Both him and hope Davis, I thought were just fantastic in the film. And I loved the style of it, the way they blended, uh, Giamatti with the real, uh, Harvey P car. And you know, just kind of, it, it was this weird amalgam of reality with fiction, breaking the fourth wall and storytelling. And I was really kind of fascinated by it. So, um, I don't know if they've done much that's good since then. I, I, you know, I didn't hear anything good about the Nanny Diaries, and I, uh, the, I just I haven't the seen Extra the Man, Extra Man, Cinema Verite. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know really kind of what else has been going on with them. But this one looks pretty interesting, and um, the, of course, the real reason I should say that I picked it is <laughs> that. Our old buddy, uh, Ethan Hawke, who uh, we love to talk about all of his new trailers, he is popping up in this one. So, uh, yes, Ethan Hawke continues to show us just how busy he really is and how committed he is to being on the screen at least once a month, it seems. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. There is not a, there's not a day that goes by where you cannot find Ethan Hawke on a big screen somewhere. Absolutely. And then, of course, the other thing is it's it's like a little Ender's Game reunion film because we got Asa Butterfield and Haley Steinfeld in this one. And I really like the look of this one. It's set in the 80s, and you've got this uh, teenager played by Asa Butterfield who uh, moves from Vermont to New York City to live with his father, Ethan Hawke. And, uh, and, and he's kind of in the punk scene and into music and stuff, and you get this really interesting look at just him in this in this world of uh, wanting to be in a band and you know just befriending uh, Haley Steinfeld and just kind of like their whole their whole vibe of of growing up in the eighties and they you know she's kind of this rich uptown girl and their parents are messed up Emily Mortimer is one of the parents and these kids kind of end up kind of creating their little family and, and uh, Emil Hirsch is in it also as one of the mm-hmm. other musicians so dealing with late eighties you've got all the kind of the the Reagan 
the end of the Reagan era, all the excess of the 80s, the AIDS epidemics going on, everything's going on. And these kids are just trying to deal with it. And uh, the music, everything, it sounds like this is one of those films that you watch and you instantly want to go out and buy the soundtrack. So that always excites me too. Looks really interesting. 10,000 Saints. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty curious about this one. I, um, you know, I, when I watched the trailer for this one, I, because I love Haley Steinfeld. I, I really do. I feel like she hasn't really been stretched since you know my true, it's true grit right when we saw her for the first time i think in 2010 um and that's been frustrating. You know, every movie that has come up, we've had, you know, Begin Again and Ender's Game and Pitch Perfect 2 now. And, I, you know, I, I feel like these films uh, have not really tapped into what is, for her, unbelievably rich talent as an actress. And I'm I'm excited because I think this one, putting her in a different, it, it's a nice kind of a different recent period in history. It's one that gives her a chance to, to, to sort of play a new role as this kind of, uh, sounds like um, pregnant kind of teenager. And uh, it, it looks like uh, it might give her a chance to really stretch those relationship chops in this, in this film. I'm very excited about it. And you're right, seeing all these in Ender's Game 2, seeing uh, Asa and, and Haley together, playing directly opposite one another once again, I think is really very cool. So I can't yeah. wait to see it. Yeah, it looks good. It's yeah. opening August 14th. I hope it's not another. What was the, oh gosh, what was the one about the New York club with uh, um, CBGB? CBGB that was, that was not good. I didn't see that one, although I did see in this trailer they're standing outside of CBGB. So yeah, I know, and that's that's I the the film was, I was so excited for that movie. I was really really excited for that movie, and it was such a disappointment. <laughs> um, so I, I hope it's not one of those. You know, these great music movies that you just want to be to to make you feel like you're 15 again. You know, and it just well, here's yeah. hoping. Fingers yeah, crossed. here's hoping. Fingers crossed on this one. Yeah. All right, Andy. Yeah. Would you like to see my wound? Go to bed, little father. We want to be alone. Please. You like me just a little bit? Your general appearance is not distasteful. Thank you. The whites of your eyes are clear. Your cornea is excellent. Your cornea is terrific. Love isn't so simple, Ninochka. Ninochka, why do doves bill and coo? Why do snails, the coldest of all creatures, circle interminably around each other? Why do moths fly hundreds of miles to find their mates? Why do flowers slowly open their petals? Oh, Ninochka, surely you feel some slight symptom of the divine passion. A general warmth in the palms of your hands. A strange heaviness in your limbs. A burning of the lips that isn't thirst, but something a thousand times more tantalizing, more exalting than thirst. You're very talkative. Ninochka, 1939, Ernst Lubitsch, uh, written by Charles Brackett and Billy Wilder. Uh, and uh, there were other people who wrote this. Two more, who are those two other credits? Oh, Walter Reich, uh, based on the original story by Melkor Lengill. Lengill. Yeah. I'm not quite sure how to say that one. Melchior, Melchior, Lengil, Lengel. Yeah, I'm gonna stick. I'm gonna stick with that. Uh, Melky. We'll just say Melky. good old Melky. Melky Lengi. Yeah. Uh, and this is uh, this is a Greta Garbo flick. Ah, mm. uh, Sweden. 
Oh, yes. This is, a, this is a nod to our dear friends in Sweden. We're finally doing a Garbo flick. Uh, also stars Melvin Douglas, uh, Ina Claire, Bella Lugosi, Sig Ruman, and Felix Bracehart and other wonderful uh, people in this film. Andy? Yes. I am so charmed by this movie. <laughs> it was an easy watch. It was It was just really light... Easy to sit down and get through, uh, and I felt super charmed by Greta Garbo. I think she was she plays a wonderful stoic, and then when she finally breaks out and laughs and smiles, it is so rewarding. It is a fairly straightforward story, uh, and uh, uh, it just everything in this film worked really beautifully for me. How did it hit you? It's it was so funny watching this <laughs> right after Gone with the Wind, right, which was. Four hours, it had all these things that we had to talk about, and then there's this, which is like as light as a feather. <laughs> it's like we could have gone to the opposite extreme of 1939 with any other film. That was quite, uh, quite a good jump that we did there. That is so I, true. I liked it. I did like it. I, I loved the cast. I loved the the actors, uh, just the, the the performances that they gave us, the the story was fun. I caught myself laughing out loud a number of times, which I always enjoy in some of these older films, just to prove that the uh, the comedy really does stand up. And I think um, you know, Billy Wilder and Charles Brackett definitely had a, uh, a thing to do with that. Um, you know, I had some issues with the story, but I don't know. It's just it's it's a light Lubitsch comedy. I didn't. I didn't uh, stress myself out about it too much because I, I, you know, when the film ended, I was smiling, I was happy, and and that was that. I think that's the important part, and I think you hit it. Like the fact that we're watching this film and even talking about this film after Gone with the Wind is probably doing too much of a service to this film. Yes, yes. Right. I mean, I think that we're we're we. I know I when I watch this film, I know that I was uh, really easy on it because it was so easy on me. Um, yeah, right. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. And so uh, anyhow, I still I was just charmed by this sweet story, this sweet little sort of legal caper uh, that that really ended up working for me. So um, let's see. How would you like to talk? Do you want to just walk through sort of what what the film is about? I imagine this is one that not quite so many people have seen compared to Gone with the Wind. Yeah, probably not. I mean, the uh, I think that looking at the. Um, the plot on Wikipedia is probably the best way to just get it across real quick. Sure. Three Ru- three Russians, Ironov, Buljanov, and Kopalsky, are in Paris to sell jewelry confiscated from the aristocracy during the Russian Revolution of 1917. Upon arrival, they meet Count Leon Dalgut, I'm not quite sure how you say his name, on a mission from the Russian Grand Duchess Swana, who wants to retrieve her jewelry before it's sold. He corrupts them and talks them into staying in Paris. The Soviet Union then sends Nina Ivanova Ninochka Yakushova, a special envoy whose goal is to go through with the jewelry sale and bring back the three men. Rigid and stern at first, she slowly becomes seduced by the West and the Count, who falls in love with her. The three Russians also accommodate themselves to capitalism, but the last joke of the film is that one of them carries a sign protesting that the other two are unfair to him. It's really nice, nice little touch. Funny. It was funny. <laughs> it was a very silly little jab at the end, but I enjoyed quite a bit. <laughs> I, I I love our three uh, Russian, yeah, Ironov, dis- Bulgenov, dis- and Kapalsky. Yeah, they are wonderful. <laughs> they are wonderfully charming. I think that's where opening the film with these guys uh, that uh, allow us to see uh, the cultural 
conflict that they're about to experience is they are such great vessels for this. It's, it, it, you know, watching them experience uh, and, and keep ratcheting up their experience with capitalism. It's perfect. It is just perfect. They're, yeah, the, the comedy is, is smart in the way that they develop with these three characters, very um, conflicted with, I mean, we see them, I believe, initially, it's, it's checking out the interior of the hotel and trying to get a sense of the scale. And it looks way too grandiose for them. And they just don't think that their uh, leaders would want them to stay there. But then they kind of talk each other into no, our leaders would want us to stay here. And and the way that they keep talking each other into things and talking themselves into things and just kind of amping up their what they're doing, uh, the reasoning uh, as they're as they're saying, well, we should stay in the bigger suite, but well, it's it's because of we need the bigger safe. You know, and it, it it really just got funny because these guys just just are totally sucked into the, this fantastic world of capitalism and uh, they play it so well and they play it well that when they're interacting with uh, uh, Leon Melvin Douglas's character that's fantastic there that, that that fun scene when he's trying to help them out and they just kind of keep coming in and kissing him. <laughs> it was it was just it was done really it, it was done really well it was written very smartly in a way that that made it made it believable it is. It, it's. It's also one of those things that I think uh, it it demonstrates uh, the 1930s and 40s impression of communism, which is that it's fabulously flimsy, right? That it that it is a weak point in in Russia, right? Because these guys are so easily swayed everywhere they turn. And in fact, you think that it's going to have some sort of a, uh, there, there's going to be some sort of communist redemption when, uh, you know, when Ninochka comes uh, and, you know, to take over negotiations on behalf of these three buffoons who have now been completely swayed by capitalism, even though they, they use the words of, of uh, you know, communism, but, but not their actions. Uh, and so she she comes over. You think this stern diplomat is going to be you know taking the reins, and she is completely swayed by by the absolute fantasy of love, and ends up being uh, rescued from communism uh, by Leon at the end of the film. So uh, you know it it is I think a, a wonderful example of uh, of a comedy, a light comedy that actually makes a fairly significant statement about the uh, the contemporary sort of the 1930s contemporary uh, impression of uh, this foreign uh, foreign state. In a in a really funny way, they're able to make these wonderful jokes about you know the five year was it the five year war or the five year plan? Yes, it says, oh yeah, I, I've. I love, you know, I can't remember what his response, but it's something. But yeah, I, I've I've been a big supporter of the five-year plan for the past fifteen years. <laughs> right, right. And then she's she's got that great line about how they're going to, uh, you know, the mass trials have been going really well. We're going to have fewer but stronger Russians. Yes, which, <laughs> yes. So great, and this is, I mean, this is when comedy works really well when you're able to put it into a very contemporary setting. And really just poke fun at it in a way that um, makes for great storytelling, but also um, ends up highlighting some of the things that are going on that people are thinking about and, uh, and you know, pointing out, yes, this is kind of what 
is on our minds as far as uh, communism as this growing thing. And is it something to worry about? They don't seem to be that with it. Yeah, or certainly that committed to it. Um, and, and, you know, when you it's it's there, there's beautiful sense of sort of punctuation put on that that storyline when they're all back in Russia, they're all back in Moscow and they, you know, they're they bring their eggs for the communal omelet. You know, she right. has two eggs and each of the each of the three, uh, you know, of her friends have their own egg that they're bringing. And and I think it's Bulyanov who reaches into his pocket and realizes his egg is crushed. And he, he you know, he, he pulls out this incredibly like disgusting, soggy, mucusy hand uh, from his <laughs> pocket with his crushed egg. And and that that little moment, while. It, it everything works out because oh there's enough for everybody uh that egg is representative of of something really important which is you know this this austerity that comes with communism is something that we're going to lampoon and uh, right. in, in cinema so i thought that was uh, i thought that was really interesting and it made this film i think more interesting than just a simple comedy to me yeah it did it, it did um and i i think that the players really tapped into just the way to tell this sort of story. I mean, it's not a very, I mean, the camera work um, was, you know, standard Hollywood stage camera work, nothing too fancy. It takes place in Paris, but, you know, clearly they uh, weren't filming it there. Mm -hmm. Um, The, uh, just the style was very, uh, just kind of, it, it fit in the time as far as this is kind of what you went in expecting, kind of just the, the basic studio film was going to look like. And uh, to that end, I think it really does boil down to the strength of the script and the strength of the actors in it. And I think that's a huge factor in making a film like this is, is getting these actors to uh, really do strong jobs with these parts. Melvin Douglas was wonderful as Leon. And uh, I mean, geez, we've kind of gone from one end of his career to the other uh, from being there back down to this, just talking about him in a couple different things. Um, but he was great in this. I mean, he's, he's just so easygoing and the, the way that he plays this, uh, this lawyer is just so much fun to watch. Well, I, I, I'm so glad you brought up being there Man, 1939 to 1979. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> uh, and still that he started, uh, in, in 1931, boy, we really did cover just about the, the entire scope of his career. He was fantastic in this film. He is, he is as charming as I would want a 1930s leading man to be. Uh, and, and yet it was, you know, it's, it's sort of the same thing you said about sleeping with other people, you know, watching those two on screen. I actually, I, I found myself really uh, enamored by them. Like I, I, I bought it. I, I thought they were, uh, they were great. Uh, much of his performance, I think was, was, um, really highlighted by, Garbo's performance, which I, I think her, you know, as I said, her stoicism allowed his comedy to shine. Yeah, it's funny because you always say that, you know, there's the the funny man and the straight man. The straight man is the one who plays opposite the one who's being all goofy and stuff. And yeah. and, and in, in a weird way, she ends up being the funny man by being so much the straight person, right? Like right. her, her, like that stoic, harsh Russian personality is so over the top that she ends up being the funny one even even though you know the the whole 
marketing campaign for this was Garbo laughs because you know people at the time really hadn't seen a lot of Garbo laughing in films, even though that's kind of absurd because she had laughed in other films before this film. But that was kind of the big the big punch you know punchline with all the posters and the trailers. And everything is Garbo laughs as if uh, people hadn't seen it before. Um, but even before she laughs, she is the one who ends up being so funny because of the way that she is being so stern. Like when she's talking about love as this chemical reaction and everything. I mean, she plays that so well. She really does. And and I I think they, you know, she turns the table on Leon, right? Who, who starts by sort of following her, but he really legitimately falls in love with her and he gets to be the lovelorn sort of puppy um, as, as she begins to sort of flirt about. And it's, it, it's a really fun exchange. Uh, but then you take them back to Russia and we lose Leon for a little while. And you see that she ends up playing sort of the, the, that character in relationship with the, the three amigos, you know, the three emissaries. Uh, and I think that is equally funny. You know, they're, they're sort of straight man comedian, uh, relationship as they're all singing around the table. Um, I, I think it's just, uh, it's really artfully structured, I think, the, the film. And in terms of the comedy, at least the layout of the, of the comedic scenes, uh, one after the other. Yeah, I agree. And it was nice, it was nice having her, it, I mean, it works well for a character transition to have her go back to Russia and now, uh, and lose her man, essentially, uh, in order to make this deal happen. And now we see her, um, uh, how, how this new look at life and and capitalism is going to affect her now back in home in the homeland so to speak um it's smart screenplay writing because she fell for uh for leon about you know i don't know at the about at the midpoint of the film i guess i'd say right. and i was kind of wondering wow that seemed kind of quick it seemed kind of sudden for her to change that quickly in this film where are they going to go from here in order to really make this work? And I was like, the only where the only place I can see it going is now her boss is going to come over and he's going to now, and they're all going to have to kind of pretend they're the you know, stern Russian people to figure this out. And so it was a nice twist to see that, oh no, she actually goes right back to Russia and, you know, the whole jewelry thing kind of is dropped and resolved really. I mean, that had been such a key part of this plot is figuring out this, this, jewelry deal but she ends up going back to russia and then it really just becomes a character film about ninochka and how this exposure to uh the the capitalistic society in in gay old paris at the time um really ended up opening her eyes to what's out there and uh, and as we see her marching and dealing with these horrid roommates that she has which are hilarious um, and, you know, having this secret omelet with her friends, you get this beautiful sense of this woman who's finally seen what's out there, but now has had it taken away from her. And uh, yes, there's this there's this incredible sense of tragedy that she kind of bears once she's back in Russia now. Oh, absolutely. And and I love that because that is her character transformation. It is her exposure to Russia after she's been exposed to capitalist capitalist Paris that allows us to see her change. And it makes it so much more rewarding when she is ultimately extracted from Russia and she's reunited with Leon that it is uh, it's been worth it. Like it, it's been a, it's a relationship, a, a reunion that we believe that is going to be stronger as a result of of her experience going back to Russia. I, I really like that bit of it. 
Yeah, I did too. Yeah. I also liked that we didn't have to see Leon back in Paris working to pull the strings to try to figure out how to get her out and back to him. Boy, and they we, didn't give us anything. No, it was it was a complete surprise. And yeah. uh, all of a sudden, she's just getting sent back over. I think she was sent down to Turkey or whatever, and that's where she's uh, surprisingly reunited yeah. with uh, with Leon. And it was wonderful. It was a very nice little way that they did that. I, I liked the structure of the script. It surprised me. And that um, sometimes in some of these older films, you don't necessarily get surprised because it seems they ended up setting so many of the tropes of screenwriting structure the way it ended up moving. So you can, like like his next film, uh, The Shop Around the Corner, that is a structure that it's it, it was kind of easy to figure out where that's uh, Ernst Lubitsch's next film, I should say. Yeah. It's easier to see where that story is going to go. Uh, and, and it's a wonderful story to watch, but you can kind of tell how things are going to shape up. But this one really, I mean, it did surprise me. It was a, it was a pretty strong uh nice structure that really highlighted this character. So what do you have to say about Garbo? I mean, we've, we've talked a little bit about her already and her performance um, here, but as Ninochka, but this was her second to last film. It was, it was her second to last film. Yeah. She, uh, I, I don't remember uh, what happened to her, but she, uh, she didn't die until 1990. I think she just kind of stepped out of the business for a while. Right. And uh, uh, this was, uh, she did one more film after this and, uh, and then she called it quits. Yeah. She did two faced woman in 1941 directed by George Q. Cor, and uh, uh, also with Melvin Douglas actually. And uh, yeah, then, then she uh, disappeared. Isn't it interesting that her last two films end up being comedies? Her only comedies, really straight-up comedies. Right, right, yeah. Uh, and that dri- they drive her out of the business. That's a, that's she, yeah, a story she, I'm pitching right now. She, well, she just wanted to uh, you know, have a private life, you know, yeah. just a, a simple life and uh, get out of things. She, she didn't like the publicity. That was really hard on her is uh, what I remember reading. And so, I mean, you know, she never did public appearances again. And... Um, she pretty much just avoided the spotlight as much as she could and uh, just kind of was a very reclusive, quiet person and uh, enjoyed the rest of her life. Never married, no children. Yeah, pretty amazing. Amazing. Uh, yeah, she not... li- and, she, and she lived in, uh, in a place in, uh, on uh, 52nd Street in Manhattan for, from the 1950s all the way until 1990 when she died. I am not uh, terribly familiar with too much of her work, uh, you know, in terms of particularly her silent films. I've seen the the big ones that you're supposed to see, uh, but I have not seen. Uh, I, I haven't seen much. Like, what is your? Are you are you a Garbo connoisseur? No, you know what's funny is I swear I had seen something of hers before, and then I was looking through. Her uh, her filmography, and I realized I don't think I had actually seen any of her films. I thought I had seen Grand Hotel, but I that's one of the uh, the best picture winners that I somehow have just managed to not see. So that's that's eluded me. And looking at her list, it's like wow, I have actually missed every one of her films. Wow, I that know. that surprises me. I feel like I uh, should get some sort of a prize. I've seen two. Uh, I have seen Grand Hotel and I have seen Anna Karenina. Uh, And I feel like those are the ones you're supposed to see. And Uh, Camille, I think, is another one. Camille, so I am behind on that. I have not seen uh, that. But 
Uh, well, we might have to do a Garbo series. There we go. There we go. Uh, I think that would be worth it. But I haven't I seen too. any of the earlier ones, any of the silent films. She's she's been around for a long, long time. Uh, she doesn't have that extensive of a credit uh, of a, a list of credits. Thirty-two uh, credits as an actress, um, and and still, um, inter- such an interesting face on screen. Yeah, she's very beautiful. She's very um, easy to watch. She plays uh, this Russian very well. And I mean, I, I think that she's one of those actresses who ends up creating a lot of mystery about her persona because of how she despised the media. She despised the studio. She despised all the the rules that Hollywood had. Um, she didn't like giving interviews. She didn't like signing autographs. She didn't like going to uh, the industry events and I think because of that, she became very um, mysterious and um, created this persona that really made her that much more interesting to watch on screen. And um, yeah, I, I think it draws you in looking at this woman, yeah. knowing that there's so little to know about her. She plays strength on screen without any camp. And I think that's one thing that sets her apart from you know other women of her of her class and cast. Uh, of the era, yeah, yeah. All right. The the one big problem that I have with the with the script is her her transition happens so suddenly from and it's all from him falling and making her laugh, which I thought was very funny, and I loved how she just kind of broke and completely was taken or completely was taken by the moment, I should say. But I did find that all of a sudden the fact that she was totally smitten by him and, and had a complete character transformation just from that laugh, I found that a bit of a stretch. But again, like I said, it was very easy to forgive in this movie. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll forgive you. <laughs> oh, uh, who else would you like to talk about? Um, we already talked about Melvin Douglas and uh, and Greta Garbo. Um Ina Claire, I don't know much about her. I, I did enjoy seeing her in the film. She's a very small filmography, but um, uh, yeah, she seemed like she was an interesting actress of the time. I haven't seen anything else that she's done, I don't think. No, I mean, she's very small filmography. She did a lot of stage work, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, uh, then the others that I wanted to talk about are the the trio. Mm-hmm. Um, Sig Ruman, who... Uh, was very funny as kind of the leader of the group. Um, the reason that I recognize him, he was actually in, uh, we're going to see him actually in a few weeks because he's also in Only Angels Have Wings. And then he was also in a couple other films in 1939, Confessions of a Nazi Spy and Honolulu. Again, you know, these people are mm-hmm. very busy mm-hmm. in these uh, in this period. But the reason that um, he just stands out to me is because uh, fairly recently I had just watched Stalag 17, um, a Billy Wilder uh, right. World War II uh, uh, war camp film. And he is the wonderful German soldier who uh, is always, um, uh, you know, just talking to the, to these guys and has such a pleasant way about him. And he was so memorable in that film. I mean, it wasn't like one of my favorite films, but boy, was he memorable. And as soon as he came on screen, I just instantly recognized him. He's just, he 
has such wonderful screen presence. And whether it's as a, a German uh, running the prison camp or as a Russian in this particular film, he's just a delight to watch on screen. I agree. Um, I, I have not seen, I don't believe I've seen Stalag 17. Which I it's, think I mean, should be on watching. my list of shame, right? Yeah, it's definitely worth watching. Yeah. Um, he also was in some Marx Brothers movies like The Day of the Races. And uh, he was in uh, To Be or Not To Be, one of my Another favorite Another Lubitsch film, right? Yeah, one yeah. Of, I think that might be my favorite Lubitsch film. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, he had a, a busy career all the way up until the 60s. So um, definitely made a lot of stuff. I, I did like uh, Sigruman, but in terms of my uh, my favorite, it would be uh, Felix Bressart as uh, Bulyanov. Oh, yeah. Who I just found so funny. Yeah, they all work really well. And he actually turns up in Lubitsch's very next film, The Shop Around the Corner. Right. Yeah. Uh, I thought he was funny, and, and uh, he was in, uh, let's see, gosh, I guess he was in To Be or Not To Be 2. Oh yeah, he was. Uh, right. Isn't that uh, funny? Uh, and then, of course, Alexander Granach, 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 Granach. Yeah, Gran- I said Granach. Granach maybe? Yeah. Uh, boy, he's been in some big films uh, from you know the original uh, Nosferatu, uh, uh, for whom the bell tolls in 1943. Um, he doesn't have that many credits, 55 credits, but uh, but it was uh, also fun to to see him show up. I think the the three of them taking some what they have done, both some great comedies and but some very serious roles, and and show up as as three practically vaudevillian uh, comedians in this film is great. Yep, yep, yeah, they're wonderful. And then of course there's the the. <laughs> Big build, but small, uh, small time on screen. Bella yeah. Lugosi, Razinin. I was expecting that's uh, maybe that's why I was expecting him to show up in Paris and have kind of like the last half of the film with her. But he's got like the one scene, one scene, <laughs> and like fifteen lines. I was really surprised. I mean, I, I know it's Bella Lugosi, but I guess I was just surprised that his his part was so small, or because it was so small that they cast someone like Bella Lugosi in it. Um, it was a, a little bit of a of a, a disappointment to see him in such a small part. Because this um, wasn't really, I mean, this wasn't the end of his career. This wasn't like the token role for Bela Lugosi. I mean, after 1939, he still had, you know, a good 15 years of work ahead of him. Yeah, I mean, he had not gotten anywhere near doing some of the uh, lower-end films that he uh, ended up doing later yeah. in his career, like in his Ed Wood days. Um, this was still in, you know, I mean, geez, he had, uh, what was the other film he did in 1939? Son of Frankenstein. Right. Well, so, the, I mean, the other film he did in 19, he did Son of Frankenstein, The Gorilla, Nanochka, The Phantom Creeps, and The Human Monster in 1939. Yeah, right. Like, that's a busy guy. Yeah. Maybe right, that's why right. his scene was so short. He had too many other things on going on. Yeah, maybe. And it was just kind of a stunt casting. Yeah. It's possible. Let's talk about Ernst. Lubitsch Touch. The the Lubitsch Touch. 76 credits. uh, Ended up, he was born in 1892, died in 1947. He's a young guy. He died 55 years old. Uh, Have we talked about him before? We have not. Why does it feel like we have? Uh, His films, he, he, you know, I, I see his style as one that could fit some of the other films that we have talked about because they uh, they feel of the era 
you know, to be or not to be the shop around the corner, those all have that same sort of vibe. Uh, and, um, you know, I mean, they're all such great films. I mean, yeah. It would be fun to do a series of his movies. He's it, got some good stuff. It would, especially because we're hitting him with Ninochka toward the end of his career. Um, you know, in 1939, he was working actively for another eight years. He had or eight or nine years. He had uh, only, it looks like, seven films after this one. Uh, right. In his 76 credit uh, career, he's, you know, I think he's gotten an awful lot earlier, and particularly in the, in the, uh, in the twenties that would be interesting, I think to look at. Well, geez. Yeah. I mean, he started in 1914 mm-hmm. uh, making silent stuff. So, I mean, he had been around a very long time. A lot um, of German stuff that, yeah. that would be beyond yeah. me. Yeah. Right. Right. But uh, it would be very interesting to look at more of his films. Um, I like his stuff, but he is, uh, I mean, I said the Ernst touch or the Lubitsch touch, sorry. Um, earlier it's, it is something that he kind of became famous for. And um, his biographer wrote this about the Lubitsch touch. With few exceptions, Lubitsch's movies take place neither in Europe nor America, but in Lubitsch land, a place of metaphor, benign grace, rueful wisdom. What came to preoccupy this anomalous artist was the comedy of manners and the society in which it transpired, a world of delicate sangra, I don't know how you say that, where a breach of sexual or social propriety and the appropriate response are ritualized, but in unexpected ways, where the basest things are discussed in elegant whispers of the rapier, never the broadsword, to the unsophisticated eye, Lubitsch's work can appear dated simply because his characters belong to a world of formal sexual protocol, but his approach to film, to comedy, and to life was not so much ahead of its time as it was singular and totally out of any time. This film is actually an interesting one because it wasn't really done in the Lubitsch style because it's so clearly set in Europe, in in uh, Paris, and then in, in Soviet Russia. Except for uh, you know, they say the one real scene in here that is kind of the Lubitsch touch is the uh, is the stag um, meal or whatever it is that they have, where where um, Leon kind of puts on this big party for the three Russians, and they have this big party, and you don't really see the party; it's all done from outside in the hallway of the hotel. And you just hear the raucous enjoyment that they're having inside. And you see the cigarette lady come up and go inside and you see her kind of disheveled and leave. And then you see her come back with two more cigarette ladies and they go in. And the way that he kind of created that um, style of showing what was going on with this party without actually showing what was going on in the party was a very interesting way that is kind of part of this Lubitsch touch. I thought that was brilliant. It was. It was a great way to do that. It was very economical. It yeah, that's a great it. way to put it. it. It was economical, but it, it, you know, it's the it's the Jaws effect. I guess the Jaws effect is the Lubitsch effect, right? The less we sh- we saw, uh, you know, the the funnier it was. Yeah, uh, and and it's I, I I feel like I don't see that that trick used in comedy enough. I it's it's hard to do. I mean, it really takes. I think it takes a very skilled hand to be able to pull that off effectively especially by filmmakers these days because so many filmmakers feel seem to feel they just need to show everything yeah 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 well it was it's fascinating i really um really enjoyed uh that that part of it i thought that was really effective yeah absolutely uh let's see um who we've talked a lot about the script already? Charles Brackett, Billy Wilder. Do we want to? Do we? Do we have some things to add about Billy Wilder? 
you know, other than he's a, a brilliant writer director, I mean, this was uh, this was definitely early in his Hollywood career. I mean, I think he um, didn't. Uh, I think he had directed uh, Malve Grain. Malve Grain. I'm not quite sure uh, how you say that, but it's his directorial debut in '34, um, and I believe it was. Where was that filmed? Was it a was it a French picture? It was a it was a European picture. I don't think it was directed over in, here. In what year? Thirty four. Oh, okay. So that was his first directing credit, and then he kind of came over here to Hollywood and ended up uh, having a lot of uh, uh, jobs doing writing, and uh, that led to him directing in the early forties. I believe is when he started. We, uh, if you want to hear us wax even more poetic about Billy Wilder, hit the uh, double indemnity episode. There you go. Yeah, we do. We do love us some Billy Wilder. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. The other uh, Walter Reich uh, involved in the screenplay. Walter Reich is, uh, but we have also not talked about any of the uh, Walter Reich films. But he's another uh, German writer uh, and uh, from Austria, Austria Hungary at the time. Yeah, definitely a lot of stuff in his uh, filmography. Yeah, he's been around a long time. His last, uh, his last theatrical credit was Journey to the Center of the Earth in 1959, um, which I think is the only one that I've seen. Of is that possible? His, all of his career? Of all of his career, besides this. Is that possible? I don't know. I guess it's possible. What have you, um, what do you, what have you seen? Gaslight. Nope, was uh, a brilliant film. I, I've seen that one. And other than that, um, I think that may be it. Yeah. Yeah, so clearly we, we have work to do there too. Yes, indeed. Okay. This was an interesting little note that I uh, dug up that I thought was quite interesting. This film was uh, released by MGM. And, of course, they had a hand in Gone with the Wind, as we talked about last mm-hmm. week. Well... Who was going to direct this film, but none other than George Cukor, before he got the call <laughs> to go <laughs> head over to jump on to Gone with the Wind. And so Lubitsch ended up stepping in to direct this film. So I thought that was just a very funny little little uh, hiccup there, because this does seem more in line with the types of films that Cukor is generally known for. That's pretty um, funny. I, I mean, I, I think it's great that Lubitsch ended up directing it, but uh, uh, you know, I I think uh, Qcor may have uh, uh, bitten a uh, bitten a little too big on the yeah. on the uh, what is the more, what's he, the he, metaphor I'm I, looking I for? I think here? you mean he's biting and chewing too much, more than he maybe <laughs> could have been chewing upon. There you go. Yes, <laughs> that's the one. <laughs> I don't know. I, I've taken over uh, for you. I clearly don't know how to speak tonight anymore. <laughs> <laughs> what? Um, what? Cinematography by William H. Daniels. Uh, also a, um, a quite a prolific cinematographer um, who is... I have seen a number of his films, uh, not the least of which Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, 1958, uh, Harvey, 1950. Um, really, how the West was one. How the West was one. That's right. That's right. Uh, it, Valley of the Dolls. Oh my goodness. 
uh, he's been very, very busy. Uh, what'd you think of the camera? You know, like I said earlier, it, it just felt very, uh, expected. It felt like a studio picture from the thirties. Nothing stood out to me really. One of the things I think that's, that's most interesting about him is that he and Garbo, uh, were peas in a pod. He shot 21 films for her. Uh, and that ends up, I think, making sort of a statement. We talked about uh, uh, who we talked about uh, with uh, James Wong Howe, the connection he made with the actress that liked the way he made her eyes look uh, by staring into the black felt. Right, it darkened her otherwise kind of cloudy blue eyes, and that's how he ended up as uh, you know director of photography for his first film. And and I think this is this is another one of those examples when you have an actress who makes a connection uh, with an, with a with a, a photographer that makes her look good, um, you end up with a, a really interesting partnership. 21 films over the course of 15 years. I don't know if that happens so much these days. Yeah. Well, one, I don't know if there's any uh, uh, actor or actress who really has the the power or the clout to handpick their DP for every film, unless they happen to have kind of also stepped into the producer side of things. Right. Because generally you see the, the director, uh, cinematographer, director, editor partnerships that, that can span yeah. many years. Right. Many, right. many films. But but I think you're right. I think that actor partnership doesn't doesn't happen so much. No, I don't think so. So yeah, anyhow, yeah, it is. A, it's an interesting thing. And I, it makes me that's another thing that makes me want to see more of these films in particular, because, again, I feel like I can't make uh, much of a connection with with his cinemagraphic style. Although I've seen Grand Hotel and Anna Karenina, I, I don't have a uh, too close of a memory of them. I I didn't have time to to watch them. I didn't even make that connection until uh, looking up his work right for right. this conversation. So, well, how the uh, let's talk numbers. How did it do? It did. Uh, it did okay. I you know it's hard to tell sometimes when you're digging into old numbers if you really have everything that you can find as far as their figures go. So I don't know if this is completely accurate, but from what I found, this film cost about uh, $1.365 million to make, which is today's dollars is about $23 million. That's It still is a healthy healthy amount of money to use. Domestically, it ended up making $1.2 million and international about $1.1 million. So all told, uh, adjusted, it made about $18 million. So it did pretty well for itself. It ended up making about $140,000 per finished minute. All right. Profitable. Yeah. Uh, that's adjusted. But yeah, mm-hmm. it, did, it, did, it did good for itself. In the 1939 realm, it certainly didn't hit Gone with the Wind, uh, just the numbers from that. But, yeah. you know, it did okay. All right. Well, I say we rank it and see how it does for us. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and uh, make sure you sign in, sign into your account and friend us up at the next reel and you will, uh, we'll see if your movies line up to our movies. Everybody wants to be like Blot. (laughs) See how your ranking does with our ranking and with the Blot score, the Blot spot. Let's do this thing. All right. Ninochka or Hot Fuzz? (laughs) Well, I have to go Hot Fuzz. Yeah. I'm I'm sorry, Greta. Ninochka or The Sandlot? Mm. I would do The Sandlot. Would you really? Yeah. All right, I'll give you The Sandlot. Ninochka or Escape from New York? Ninochka. Absolutely Ninochka. 
Another funny thing about the movie poster is it says, don't try to pronounce it, just go see it. <laughs> That's really funny that you bring that up right now because, you know, my wife speaks fluent Russian and she was giving me so much trouble because I keep calling it Ninochka and it's Ninochka. And, oh, and so of I course was, no one in the movie says that. I know. <laughs> and she was listening to the movie saying, are they really, are those, those are not Russian people. I said, no, no, they're British and Swedish. <laughs> so, uh, and German, and there none of them. I don't think there are any Russians in here, but it's it's Ninochka. Nor were there any French people. But, Nor yeah. French people, right? Right. <laughs> it's a Hollywood movie from 1939. <laughs> what are you gonna what are you gonna get out of it? All right, Ninochka, or Ninochka, or the game. The game. I, I would do the game. Yeah. Ninochka or Christine. I'll do Ninochka. Yeah, I'll do Ninochka. Ninochka. Ninochka or Troll Hunter. <laughs> I'll go with Troll Hunter. Really? Yeah, that's a, that's a fun movie. That I was really. It, that I I'll give it to you. Yeah, that was good. All right, uh, Ninochka or Detour. Mm. I'm gonna pick Detour. Detour. Okay. Yeah, great little uh, film noir. Ninochka or Prometheus. <laughs> uh, I'm going with Ninochka. N- Ninochka. Yeah. There you go. All right, one sixty one. All right. Out of 191. All right. There you go. I think that's a fair place for a time. I do, too. It was a funny, sweet little comedy in a list of really good movies. So where do we go from here in our 1930s jaunt, 1939 jaunt? Well, we're going to be uh, jumping in with Jimmy Stewart. We're going to head over to Washington with him. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Wow. Wow. Yep. It's been a long time since I've seen this film wonderful film i watched it uh just a few months ago and it uh boy is it held up really well looking forward to watching it again really look forward to that yep excellent all right so it shall be done until then i shall be in the bed go to bed little father i want to be alone I got a one star. Someone who does, does not feel as good about the communist exploitation, capitalist exploitation, as we do. Maybe it's just too old for the genre in that the love conquest is long and boring and unrealistic. The tough woman suddenly, and I mean suddenly, is overtaken by love. It's nauseating. She seemed to entirely lose her personality and interesting traits. Uh, and then mm. <laughs> so good. Uh, the the response is uh, to the the tough woman suddenly and and I mean suddenly is overtaken by love. It's nauseating. Uh, the response to that comment is is that you, Greta? But I thought you were dead. <laughs> Amazon commenters are the best. Oh, so funny. Well, I've got a three star that said too much style by Robert Long Longrush. I wanted very much to like this movie. Somehow I had missed seeing it for years and I missed ever seeing a Garbo opus. When I finally viewed it last night, Ninochka was considerably below my high expectations. Here's why. The three Bolsheviks, or Ritz brothers, or three Stooges, were silly without being funny. Melvin Douglas was nothing more than the lounge lizard a la Fred Astaire. 
Ina Claire tried to be Billy Burke, but just talked funny. And when the Greta Garbo finally appeared, she was dumpy and had every close-up shot through gauze. So she laughed. By then, I didn't much care. The story was also a mess, implying that the choices that the two choices were between the Spartan austerity of Soviet Moscow and the Top Hat Champagne Society of pre-World War II Paris. Both were a little vacuous and simplistic. This is certainly from the golden age of Hollywood, and we know they could make great films in the era of 1939, but this isn't up there with the likes of The Wizard of Oz, Grapes of Wrath, etc. Perhaps I just expected too much after such a long wait. Mm, Interesting points. Yeah, yeah, it's too bad. It's interesting points. I mean, yeah, we didn't bring it up. The 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 two societies are all we see of the very the, the very sparse Soviet society and then the the uh, free wheeling uh, Parisian society. But um, yeah, yeah it, it's he's right. I mean, it's the golden age of Hollywood. It I don't think they were trying to give you uh, Warren Beatty's Reds with this film. <laughs> no, I don't think they were. <laughs> Oh, jeez, Amazon. <laughs> I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Today. 